Last year, I did 281 tables by myself. So basically, I push out 0.76 tables a day. That's the voice of Dan Wellens, owner of Country Tables and Furniture. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. From quoting a project to getting paid to everything in between, Jobber software brings everything together to make projects easy to manage and customers happy, giving you more time in your day and getting you paid faster. Go to getjobber.com Ethan or check out the link in the show notes for a free 14-day trial of Jobber. And if you try it now, you get 20% off your first six months when you sign up. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Dan Wellens, owner of the Minneapolis, Minnesota-based furniture company, Country Tables and Furniture. Now, if you want to talk about the business side of the furniture business, Dan is definitely somebody you want to have a conversation with. He has made over 5,000 dining room tables over the years, and that doesn't even count the other types of furniture he has produced during his career as well. With numbers like that, you have to be doing something right not only with building quality pieces, but also with building a quality company. Dan is somebody who has learned over time how to walk the fine line in furniture making, between having a manufacturing company and making furniture as an artistic pursuit. Follow along as we talk about the importance of automating your shop, what the steps for making a solid business foundation look like, a real deep dive into pricing, and much more. We cover a lot in this episode, so let's jump right in and hear about Dan's business in his own words. I kind of pay my homage to being a farm boy in Minnesota. You know, we have 160 acres here, so we've always done the farm. And over the years, if you needed it built, we built it. Like if you had to have a shed built, we built a shed. Or my dad, he's an inventor. And so, I mean, he's made tractors and bobcats type vehicles. He's made track dozers and it's just, being able to look at something and knowing that you can build it is kind of where I come from. Um, but then, so being a farm boy, I took out for the military, went to the Navy out of high school and jumped out of a lot of helicopters and did all that fun stuff. And then after that, I uh, learned that the military didn't pay enough. So I started contracting for the NSA and the Department of Defense. And then I became a police officer in Virginia Beach. Um, And then I finally came home to Minnesota and I thought I really wanted to do the corporate world. And my job for Verizon corporate was just to um, really play golf and schmooze clients all day long. And I just found it so unfulfilling. So I kind of started my business just by making one table here, making a table there and selling it. And really that ball just rolled downhill at the time had a 30 by 30 uh, shop behind the house and that was the shop where I was building everything out of. I built a new shop, built the biggest shop that the uh, county would let me build out here on our homestead and um, kind of haven't looked back since then. So the little bit of word working I did back in high school and then just playing around. But again, my dad, he's like, he's the bowl guru. He's the lathe guru. And I kind of just picked up everything from that and um, just kind of be able to make anything I want. And then into the wood side of it, 
um, just has progressed over the years. So kind of fortunate in that regard. Growing up with that inventor's mindset with seeing it from your dad and then it being imparted to you must have helped with keeping keeping the keeping the wheels turning because the jobs that you did bookending from high school to when you started your company although were very important jobs were not really in that artistic vein that that a furniture maker usually finds themselves in so having that that already inventor's mind always working in the background must have must have left you with that drive to really jump into woodworking full force once you found an outlet for all that creativity. That was the thing is like, I kind of, you know, when you're a kid, you're just like, ah, I don't want dad, you know, the farm life, you know, it's just kind of not me. And then it's funny how much you miss it when you move away and uh, just traveled around the world. And it was great. And I think everybody should travel around the world, but you just come to this point where you know, every young kid thinks that playing golf and schmoozing clients is fun. You know, every young kid thinks their dream job is traveling, but my dream job is building things. The pride of making something and then the pride of giving it to somebody, that's priceless to me. That is what is just, you know, that's, that's what I live for. Living for what you do every day is a good position you find yourself in, but running a furniture company isn't done on just dreams alone. There's a lot of legwork that goes into having a successful business, which I'm sure you know a thing or two about. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So, you know, starting the business, you know, the first things you kind of think about is you think about what do I want to make? And I played around with that idea a lot. I kind of fell into that because it was just kind of tables are the easiest thing. Every, everybody, novice woodworker makes butcher blocks in some sort of table and then you just grow and you progress from there into what you do um but when when i was starting out and i was like what am i going to do some reason the name country tables really just stuck with me and i was like i want to start a business and i want to call it country tables and i did that for two reasons one reason was i think the search domain is amazing to have something that easy you know a lot of guys call their business bob's woodworks woodshed or something like that. And the thing that I'm a little more binary when I think, and when it comes to somebody searching, because everything nowadays is Google search results. And the first thing people do when they type in, uh, look for a table is they want to type in rustic table or beautiful table or country table. And side note, I own country tables. I own beautiful tables. I own hardwood, Minnesota. So I own all these domain names that drive traffic to my main page, country tables. Yeah, you're right. Word of mouth is great, but getting, getting ranked high on Google search results is the biggest billboard that you can put out there nowadays. So planting your flag on the internet with your company name in the search results, I'm sure has, has truly helped you out over the years. The other thing that's a little twist on that is I, over the years, because I started out, you know, doing barn wood and we took down barns and we made furniture out of that. And now over the years, I have progressed into more 
um, exotic woods and um, kind of Balsanese hand carvings. So I'm not so much rustic guy anymore, although I still have my name country tables. But for search results on Google, it's really good because my search hits, I get 3,000 average is probably 2,500 to 3,000 hits every week that that's traffic to my site which I don't think that if I had Bob's Woodshed name that I would be getting those kind of hits. So that's just kind of something I thought about. And then after that, I kind of jumped into what destination do I want to start a business? Um, So I started looking at, you know, do I want to be a sole proprietor? And for tax reasons, you know, that leaves you kind of limited. So I picked LLC because it offered me more liability to the company. And then for tax filing, it's still more flexible. So I would kind of recommend an LLC for someone in my position over an S corp or a C corp or anything like that. And then I was really comfortable just working out on the back of my shed. So, you know, I was just kind of like, you know, I'll do country tables, work out on my shed because, and I've always kind of had the idea of juggling a storefront, but I'm so happy I didn't do it because now I'm in a lucky situation because Minneapolis is 25 minutes from me and it's a straight highway. So like if you're leaving the cities, you come down the highway, I'm literally like the first spot of country that you can see. And people love coming out here. People love to experience. Um, I have a little showroom set up here. The kids come and they look through the windows and they see the CNC's going and they see, you know, if I'm working and and they just love that experience. And it's kind of like, we don't pay enough uh, homage to Clint um, from Fixer Upper, you know, that um, Fixer Upper from uh, HGTV. But it's like all designers nowadays, they need to have a woodworker. So we're able to provide that experience and the designers bring people out here. And it's just, it's good all around. And I just feel like if I had a storefront in the suburbs, it just, it wouldn't play. It wouldn't give that um, experience. So that's something that I'm able to give people and they're able to come out and, and look at, you know, the shop and just kind of see where the tables are made and how they're made. People love to see behind that curtain. They love to see how furniture is made, how it goes from a piece of wood to a dining room table that they sit at. And having people see the process happening in your shop instead of in a, in a storefront somewhere, removed from the shop floor, removed from where it was created, definitely gives a piece a different feel than just seeing it in a showroom. Now, you have your name, you have your location, so what, what comes next for you? You know, and then after kind of deciding on where I'm gonna do, what's my name gonna be, I decided on doing QuickBooks for, um, my backend policy. So, which I'm really glad we don't have to deal with too much today, but you know, I mean, there's Jobber, which you use and um, there's Netscape out there and stuff like that. But, and this is something that I really need to look more into because I am getting killed in APR fees, but having the books and learning, you know, not having to worry about once there's a transaction posted, sales tax gets paid right away and all that backend stuff. So I'm able just to build and do what I love doing. And I don't have to worry about all that backend stuff. So that is just something that, so when I started the business, it's kind of all these little things that, you know, I tackle these one by one and trying to figure it out how I wanted to do it and, and how to, yeah, just 
you know, starting that business. That is a solid foundation. You laid an incredibly solid foundation, which is a great way to start a business because it is so hard to run the business, build the pieces, deal with the customers and grow while you don't have that foundation. So my hat is off to you for for building something that you know you can grow from. Once you set that foundation, now that can run in the background, but you still need to build your business. You still need to build your client base. And with your domain and with your company name, you're getting a lot of action looking at your sites, but that's global. And correct me if I'm wrong, but with you, a lot of your work is relatively local. So how have you taken that that worldwide view of customers and applied it to something that's more reachable for you on a day-to-day for clients? I do 95% local. So let's back up here for a second because I, I'm a little more old school and like I literally just got an Instagram doing it probably for six months now. And before that, when I had four employees, one of the guys was like, oh, back in, I think, 2017, he's like, you need to do Instagram. We need to be doing this. And I was just kind of like, eh, not really. I was just like, let's just build something. And so this whole social media thing is new to me. I like it. It's a portfolio builder, but I don't rely on it at all. So let's let's start uh, back it up a little bit. So the way I start out and the way I would recommend that everybody starts out is, you know, you need to be talking to designers, you need to be talking to realtors, you need to be talking to builders. And the best way to find them is like all designers, they just love to put their stuff out there. And that's great because, you know, we're a little bit more introvert normally than um, designers that are extroverts. And, but when the designers, like we have a local paper, it's called the Star Tribune. And every year they have a, hey, let's see who the top five designers are, the top five you know, companies in every category. And if you just keep an eye on that, all of a sudden you'll see a list of 50 designers that put in to be into this top designer awards for the Star Tribune. And all you had to do is just take that information down. I personally send them a bottle of wine every year during the holiday seasons, and I put my own little label on it. But just come up with something creative and get your name out there a little bit. But if you can get in with designers, retailers, and builders, they all want a woodworker, and they want to have that custom guy. And so that has been great for me. And that's honestly how I've gotten into every magazine, and that's how I've gotten my tables on HTV is just one day out of the blue, you know, the designer will call me up and say, hey, by the way, your uh, table's on HGTV or something like that. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And it's just, it's that simple. And I'm one of those guys, I kind of go with the mentality, if you build it, they will come. I don't seek out, I don't put my name in papers and stuff like that. Designers will do that work for you. So yeah, I just think designers, retailers and builders Um, The other thing that I think is just absolutely crazy and nobody talks about is yard signs. I have yard signs all throughout the um, area and there's no laws on them, really. There's laws for if someone's running for mayor or something like that, political signs. But as far as builder signs or company signs, there's not really laws on the book. So you can literally go put these yard signs pretty much wherever you want. And while you're doing that, you know, these signs have 
paid off. I've had one sign in one location next to a Starbucks and it's been there over four years. And I kind of always ask people, where did you um, hear it from me? And it's just crazy how many people say, oh, the Starbucks sign. Um, so as silly as it sounds, yard signs are one of the best marketing that I've seen to date. You say it sounds silly and, and it might, but you need to find that that different avenue to reach clients because social media is so jam packed full of people trying to get their name out there and magazines are so full of people trying to get their name out there. So something like a yard sign could be an overlooked way to do it. But like yeah. you've said, it's so incredibly helpful for you. And I can't, I can't help but laugh when you were saying that, thinking that you putting out all these yard signs and accidentally get elected mayor because people, <laughs> they, they do a write-in ballot for you. And, and, uh, and then one day you think it's a designer calling for an HGTV show, but really it's the local government asking why you haven't shown up for uh, your first day of work. <laughs> and, and, you know, the other, the other things that, uh, that really help with marketing is uh, giveaways. So I am very involved with doing charities for mental health awareness, or I have like three or four charities that I really like. And, you know, every that's 250 people that come to these charity events. And then if you give away a table for a sideline auction or a live auction, you know, that's a good mass of people in your area, normally wealthy people that are like, hey, I want a table from this guy too, because one, they like what you're doing, um, and two, people like to support local. So that, that's also a huge one is, is charities. So I would recommend everybody just do, start doing more charity giveaways for silent auctions and stuff like that too, um, just to help get your name out there. Yes, working with charities is great. It's great from a, a business perspective, but I also know that community and giving back to it is very important for you. So yes, it works well on the client side and is a great idea for reaching new clients. But on the personal side for you, charity work is also very fulfilling and is something that is very important to you. And I fully support people out there donating to charities and doing charity work for both those reasons, client interactions and because it's important to give back. It really is. And for shows like that, they must be exciting for you because you get to show off your designs, your personal designs. You're not making a custom piece for somebody. You get to make pieces that reflect your own thoughts, your your own love of the materials and love of the craft. It's funny you say that because like kind of going into what my business is, is I am kind of over the years have maybe become a little wood snob. I'm not huge on, you know, um, pines and woods that move a lot. I am kind of now my exotic woods and I'm always going to be a walnut guy. But so kind of my niches when I started my business was saying, you know, I've had the employees. I know what that's like. And I, I love people, but I hate managing people. I am not the type of guy that likes to tell you, you know, to stay on top of you and tell you how to run your day. And I find that when you have employees and when I had employees, I was always doing other things in building. I was doing all the back end work and I was doing all the deliveries. And that 
it just got to a point where I did not like that. So I wanted to shape the business where I was still artistic, but I was a manufacturer. And there's a fine line. And I believe that when you become an artist, you can be an artist and then you can be in a manufacturer. And what really opened my eyes to this was when I went down to Las Vegas for the first time, I think this is like six or seven years ago, and we went to the, the AWFS fair. And the first minute that you walk into that place, like I think I was building furniture at least, you know, I don't know, I was building furniture for a while then. But when you step into that place, you know where you land on the scale. And the first minute you're like, okay, I am just a peon and you're looking at equipment that's $500,000 and CNC in the automation world. And it is just the most impressive thing that you will ever see. And so when you are an artist or you consider yourself a furniture maker and then you walk into that place, it, it changes you instantly. As the event host for AWFS for a number of years, I know firsthand how small you can feel in a show that has has such gigantic machinery. And I know that it really can put your shop in perspective versus what the rest of the world is doing. And, and that is taking stock of where you stand in, in the industry is very, very important because you can get a very micro view of where you are and you forget that it's a, a much bigger world out there. And, and it, it changed me and it said, I need to, I want to be this guy that makes a good living because my wife and I, and we have three kids and we have a lifestyle that we like. We all have, we have new vehicles and we, we do the camping thing and, and there's just an expectation that I need to earn to support my family being the sole provider. When you're starting out and you're trying to figure out how to drive more business, for me, it was never getting the clients. The clients were always there. For me, it was turning production. So my first thing was to say, let's hire people. And then I quickly learned that I didn't like to manage. So now I was saying, let's go get the tools to do it. Let's invest into the company. And so then I bought my first wide belt sander instantly overnight. We started turning more product. And then all of a sudden it was the CNC and then uh, the JLT clamps. So over the time, I we just started just, you know, we turned in a, to a manufacturing shop, but then we lost the artistic value to everything. And then, so what I learned over the time is just to balance it. And it was the hardest thing for me to tell my guys, and some of them worked for me for quite a while, that I just kind of wanted to do this on my own. But I knew I had to do it because I had to find the balance into being artistic and doing manufacturing, you know, pushing the product out. So where my business is today is last year I did 281 tables by myself. So basically I push out 0.76 tables a day. I feel is really good because I can come in on a Monday. I can glue up five tables there. I could glue up five. I actually think I glued up 15 tables in one day, but normally it's five tables, fill up the JLT clamps, um, you know, straight line, rip everything, glue them up, send them through the wide belt sanders. And then you're doing finishing sanding. And I think what a lot of people lose 
people think that high quality means it needs to take a long time. And I couldn't disagree with that more because I think high quality is using quality product with quality tools and quality techniques. And then you can push a good product and make a good product that way. So the automation side of it has allowed me to be artistic, do the hard labor faster, but it also has allowed me to play more over the years. Knowing where you stand in the industry is great, but you need to know your pricing. And pricing as one of the hardest things that people do in a business is, is a giant part of how somebody runs their business. So let's jump into your pricing and how that works in your shop. Let's just say my average table. So uh, I'll kind of put this out there, how I price things and everything like that. So when I, my average table is about $2,600. So let's just say it is an 84 inch walnut table. In that 84 inch walnut table at $2,600, let's just say the base, I got $70 of steel, $150 of labor and powder coating. And oh, what is that? That's 33.25 board feet of walnut. Let's My walnut, I buy at $5.50 because I bulk buy 15,000 board feet at a time. That comes out to $182. Um, labor and clear coat on top of that, let's just say $150. So let's just say I have a, like $152 in my average cost to one of my tables. So if I'm charging $2,600 and my average cost of the table is $552, that's a $2,048 in profit. So that's 371% profit. So I'm also a little conflicted when I hear everybody say that they're having a hard time you know, with their margins, because to me, that 371% is pretty good margin. Um, and I also heard a lot of times, you know, people were saying, let's do that time for um, factor. And if you did that times four factor, that would put you at $2,208. So I would be leaving $400 on the table if I did that. So you have to assess where your market is. And the way I assess where my market is, is I'm kind of thinking, okay, I live in Carver, Minnesota. Um, Carver, Minnesota, the medium household income is 120,000. Uh, the medium home income for houses around here is 520,000. So that kind of puts you in a mindset of what, what kind of money people have to spend. And then in those homes around here, all of our friends, you know, before they bought tables for me, they were buying tables for restoration hardware and pottery barn. So I could, I consider those guys my comparables, if you will, for where I want to be on par to sell my tables. So the average table at Restoration Hardware is $3,200. So that puts me underneath them, which I make a better quality product and I'm underneath Restoration Hardware and they're buying local. So I really try to keep it a win-win so they get the experience, they get the tables at better cost. You know, it kind of brings it all together. So once you can kind of figure out where you want to price things, now going off of that again, you know, you can't, a lot of people talk about just taking materials and your time and your labor and times it by four. I also can't do that because I just said what my average price was on a 84 inch walnut table at $2,600. Now, 
I started doing um, exotic woods. So now I import woods and I'm getting parotas and monkey pods and teaks and dragon woods. And what's crazy is I can get that wood from Central America for cheaper than what I can get my domestic walnuts for. But I am not gonna sell my monkey pod tables for $2,600. Those are at least $3,600. So that's why you can't just say, you know, times it by four, because if you're doing your due diligence and you're shopping around and getting your margins as loose as you can, I'm keeping them wide open as you can, you need to always be trying to, you know, figure out where can I buy the wood at the lowest price? Um, how can I do, how can you streamline things? And sometimes I just laugh at it. The other day they were talking on Instagram and one guy just said, hey, you know, he put up a post and he said, hey guys, what's everybody buying their walnut at? And I was just flabbergasted by all these answers because all these answers, you know, you can look people up and what kind of shops they own on Instagram. And these guys are coming back with answers at like $18 a board foot, $14 a board foot. And it just blows my mind that people aren't streamlining and trying to figure out how they can get better margins and keep their costs down and their overhead down. As an old school and older guy, my first thing, you know, when I is how to how to get wood and how to source wood at a good value so I can charge for what I want to charge. That is an impressive knowledge of your business. And when you say something like 0.76 tables a day, that number, yes, it showcases the amount of tables that you're putting out, which is a tremendous amount, but it also shows your command of the business side of the business. And with that command, it lets you, like you said, get back into the artistic side because you're not spending all your mental energy running the business and running the back end of the business. If you know what your numbers are, you know exactly what you need to do. Instead of that, that stifling your creativity, that actually opens it up because you don't have to think about it. So knowing one's business to that degree is, is so incredibly important when running a successful business. Absolutely. So it comes down to, and I bet this was at like my year eight mark, but after a while, when you make so many tables and like today, I think I'm at like 5,200 and some tables, you, not that you lose track of your tables, not that you lose interest in it. It's your bread and butter and you got to detach yourself. The passion, the, this is really tricky. And there's a lot of gray area here because you, I'm very passionate about my woodworking. I'm very passionate about my business, but I also understand that this is a business. And so when I make a product, I am not emotionally attached to any of my products. I love my photos when they're in the space and I love my tables, but I am not emotionally attached to that. And this kind of dives into, I've heard a lot of guys say, oh, well, I'll never have a sale or I'll never, you know, discount my tables at all. And I want 
everybody to go out and read the book called The Nudge. Um, Nudge is a book and it was written by an economist called Richard Thaler. And this is a must read for all entrepreneurs. One, it tells you, you can only offer three options to a client. So basically when I have a client come to my um, showroom, one, I never spend more than an hour with a client. I'll never go on site to a client's house. I um, I kind of pre-qualify my clients. They come in and before we even start talking, I'll say, hey, jump on countrytables.com and go fill out the client survey. On the client survey, it tells everything that I needed to know. They'll send us, submit a picture, kind of tell me their price point. They'll tell me how many kids they have. They'll tell me if they have pets. And from that snapshot right there, I get a good sense of who they are and how serious they are. Now, once they come in, they sit down and we start designing things. And what this book really teaches you is if you offer too many options, you're going to lose the sale. They're going to walk right out. So most people like offer a small, medium or large. So when I design a table, I'll really offer three woods. Now I'll make a table out of any wood. If they have a specific wood, I'll make it. But I really offer like a monkey pod, a maple or a walnut. So that gives them three options. The styles for the three options of styles, I'll kind of say we can do a metal and wood style. We can do a 100% walnut table or we can do a 50-50 where the top is a walnut and then the base is a poplar. And then that would cost the, cut the cost by about $900 if you did that. Um, so really getting into not offering so many options that you overwhelm your clients is so important in the business of customization. Customization to a point is what I really learned over the years. And then when you allow that customization to occur like that, you control the conversation. You control what you want to build and not build for the most part. Because the other thing that I've gotten really good at over the years, and I've done so many different designs, bases on tables and different table styles and shapes and everything like that, is you, you kind of learn what works in your shop. And if you're making product A and product B and they have nothing in similarity, you're disrupting the shop's natural workflow. So what I've gotten really good at is my business is I make tables or table type stuff like sideboards or entry tables or stuff like that. And that really allows me to keep up my workflow and not have any disruptions because everything still gets glued up the same. Everything still goes through the wide belt sander. And then it's the final touches and how I cut it down that really shape that piece of furniture. So that allows me to not get so artsy. And I do love getting artsy, but you got to be careful as a business owner, because if you get too artsy, you're going to kind of pigeonhole yourself and have a harder time selling that product versus selling a product that more of the masses will buy and you can have a quicker turnover with if it's not a custom piece like that. So that's something I would really recommend is just everybody give that book a read. Sounds like that book really opened your eyes to a new way of thinking. And that's what's great about reading books on business or, or talking with people who have run their own businesses. It gives you a new perspective and lets you look at your own business in a new light. Absolutely. So, and then the other thing that is very interesting in that book is understanding transactional utility. And I'll say it again, it's called transactional utility. 
and get this phrase in your head because transactional utility is the pleasure you get from a perceived value of what you paid versus of what you expected to pay. Synopsis, feelings sell. You know, people are human. The psychology of selling something is very simple if you can sell it right. So this is, comes down to what I think I have done right in my business is one, I can really work on my communication and I'll be the first one to admit that. But I am close to the public. But once a year, I hold a sale and for three days. And during the sale, it's kind of the time that I seriously just play and I make some crazy stuff. And that's my way of kind of um, just venting and, and making what I want to make and um, just kind of testing the waters and see what sells and what doesn't sell or what I can price things at or making a new style table. So that the sale, I have a lot of fun because you're always building things for other people, but this weekend, once a year, I make things that I wanna make. And what's absolutely crazy about it is the sale every year. So last year, we had 150 cars in the driveway the first day. And it was just, it's, it's insane how many people just come out and they want to be a part of this sale. They wanna be a part of the small business. But when you say something is 10% off, um, when you offer a sale, you are getting into the feeling of your sales. You're getting in, playing into the human emotion. Um, it was back in 2012, JC this, this has always stuck with me. But in 2012, uh, JC they are they've always inflated their prices just so that they can have these huge sales. And um, in 2012, they came out with this, they, they said, decide, you know what, we're not going to have all these silly sales because everybody knows it's fake anyway. We're just going to go to this fair and square structure of um, all of our pricing. And the next day, JCPenney's um, stock prices just plummeted. And it just goes and it shows the psychology of humans that it, it's something like 84%, no, 82% of people between 25 years old and 45 years old, they use a coupon to shop. They use an e-coupon or a traditional coupon today, nowadays to shop. And again, it just explains the human, con the psyche of just, you know, if someone's teetering of wanting to buy a table, but it's a little too expensive, this is her opportunity to come and say, it's 10, it's 15% off today. And that's what gets people through the door. That's why I think the power of sales is just in incredible for that. So I really enjoy having my once a year sale, having people out to the shop and can't say enough about that. Well, I think the sale aspect of it comes into play because you already have that, that aura of quality about you. You already have that established business. You already have stuff that people want. And that's why a sale is appealing. A sale for something that nobody wants doesn't matter how much they they mark it down. It's not something that people will be interested in. So so the sale aspect is is great, but it comes hand in hand with building that reputation. Absolutely. You are somebody who has really gotten down the idea of automation and automating a shop and having everything 
working at 200% because the amount of product that you turn out needs that type of setup to go. So let's talk about how you made that switch from employees to a more automated system and how that's been working for you in the long run. Like I said, I am, I love people, but I hate managing people. Um, and so this kind of played into when I started out and I started hiring people, my big thing was, do I hire people as W2? So are they employee? Um, and then you have much more control over them, but you're also paying workman's comp and you're doing all that other silly stuff. And then you can put somebody on 1099 as an independent contractor. Now, technically, if they're a 1099, you cannot dictate their hours. You cannot, they have to have their own tools and there's a bunch of guidelines that you got to use. But again, there's some gray area there. So, but what I did is I put everybody on 1099. So everybody was an independent contractor and I would just say, Hey guys, here's the shop. You get, everybody knows how to use the tools and everything like that. I would give them their uh, build list in the beginning of the week and just said, here's your deadline. And so it was great because everybody could come in do what they wanted. I mean, it, it was the best situation you could really have. And it ran really good, but I was not happy personally. And like I said, I was just doing the back end stuff. I wasn't building anymore because I had a there was so much wood that I had to get. And there's so many deliveries that I had to do. And it's just over the time you want to find balance and you want to find what makes you happy. One day I just kind of said, you know what? I had enough, enough's enough. I want to build again. I want to be, I want to just put my artistic touch and make the business me again. And because it just got kind of out of control with four employees. And so then I'm, come into it. I said, guys, you know what? I'm going to make this for me. And there's things that you learn over the years. So like I said, I've turned the business into a tables. I stopped building cabinets. I stopped building chairs. I said, you know what? I'm only building tables. I'm streamlining what I want to build because as a woodworker, people ask you for everything. And if you're a good business owner, you understand where you're profits are and where your profits are not. Now, being a one-man shop, I also said had to say, okay, I can't make small items. So I won't make anything for under $2,000. Now, it sounds kind of, eh, really? But being a one-man shop, I have the books done, but you still got to enter it. And if you're just putting in all these $50 cutting boards and small items like that, that can really, you know, that could be another person's job. And it just, that's too much for one person. So by staying in large orders, I really reduce my book work. So I just kind of said, you know what? Everything's kind of um, $2,000 or above. That keeps my books easy. And then that just balances the whole shop out once you do that. So I'm also, I won't go on location anymore. I am I, I love the comfort of my shop. My shop is built out exactly how I want it. Every sander is exactly where I want it. And when you travel onto location, you're dealing with parking, you're dealing with the cold, you're dealing with other contractors. So I won't have any installs. Um, if someone wants a bench installed, I'll make a slide in bench so they can basically just pick it up and set it in place. Yeah, you can control everything in your shop for the most part. 
you set everything up in a controlled environment to give you the the best working conditions that you can but when you get on site with all the variables that come with that you can you can sometimes be losing days sometimes even weeks when site conditions go bad and and that is totally out of your hands and if you're running a business with tight deadlines like most people find themselves in then it's incredibly hard to do both the building and the install of a project without a full team in place to get it done. And knowing that and coming to the understanding that installs can be a pitfall for your business if you aren't set up for it is something that comes with experience, something that you learn from years on the job and really knowing your own company and how it can operate for maximum efficiency. These little tips and tricks that you learn over the years help you figure out how to streamline everything. So the automation comes in is once I kind of figured out, you know, now I'm just making tables, tabletops and stuff like that. If you go out there and you buy a good JLT clamp system and you buy a good wide belt sander, these are things that are very simple to operate for one individual. And they just cut the sanding time in half. Or if you're slabbing on a CNC, what used to take me some of these big slabs, like I would import monkey pod slabs that are 12 feet by 60 inches wide. And if you were going to flatten these by hand, it would take you a week. And the first time I had the CNC, it did it in 10 minutes. And there is no difference between doing something by hand or having it done on with automation. It's just better and faster. Now the upfront investment, you know, can everybody spend $70,000 on a CNC, $20,000 on wide belt sanders? Yes, you can. Over the years, if you do it smartly, you need to reinvest in your shop. I kind of always keep in the back, back of my head is recession proofing and old age. What, what am I going to do 20 years from now? I'm obviously not going to do heavy products like tables anymore you, you kind of want to set yourself up. So if you're, if you're out there hustling right now and you're not buying your big tools and you're not reinvesting in your business, you are always going to be hustling for the rest of your life. When I invest back into the business, every year gets easier and easier and easier. And which is great because we have a seven month old right now. And I go home at 2 PM, 3 PM, and I can still stay on top of all that work that I need to get done. So I can't say enough how automation is just one CNC is four employees. And it's it's just crazy how, how fast something like that can just turn your business around. That is the voice of somebody who has learned where they want to take their company. And that is not something that you know on day one you you learn that as you as you grow as you figure out exactly where the business is just like you learn where you need each and every tool in your shop for the best possible working outcome you also know the best way to position your business by doing it by learning it by by figuring it out as you go. So hearing how you took the business to where it is now is great hearing that journey and hearing how you're setting yourself up for the next 20, 30, 40 years as a business just shows that you really do know your shop.
I just, I'm so happy where I'm at. I'm just happy with the product I'm pushing out, but I'm still artistic and I'm a one-man shop doing what I love. Let's talk contracts because building furniture is great. Making money is great, but you want to be able to keep that money for the things you built. And the way to do that, yes, is with happy clients, but the way to do it so you know you're covered even with an unhappy client is with contracts. And I know that for you, contracts are a very important part of your process because with the turnaround that you're doing for the work, you can't get personally attached to each project. You can't walk each client through. So you need to know that that table that you're sending out is not going to get any hiccups along the way. So let's talk about your contract process and what goes into it. Yeah. So I think this is something that is very important, even starting off um, that very first table that anybody sells that for very first product, anybody sells. I've heard people say this all the time that, well, I just haven't run into problems yet. I, everybody's been good. I, I make tables for friends. This is a business. And especially in my situation, making over 5,000 tables, I have met all sorts of people. I have met so many wonderful people and I'm, we're talking 5% of people that you need to be careful and you need to cover your butt because um, they will take you to court. And I have never lost in court because of my contracts. So basically I set my stuff up like this. Come to my webpage and cut and paste if you need to and put it onto your policies. But my very first invoice that I send out. So I'll sit down with the client for an hour. I'll find out what they want. I'll jot in my little notebook. And then as soon as they leave, I'll jump on QuickBooks and I'll just type up a quick invoice. So in my invoice, I have it broken down to what table product they're getting, what size they're getting, what kind of wood they're getting. So I have a very detailed description of what they're getting because your invoice is your contract. That is your handshake. That is everything in the legal world. So on your invoice, you need to have detailed of what you're going to do, what price they're going to do how you're going to deliver it. And at the very bottom of your invoice, it should read something like this. In my case, it's country tables and furniture is not liable for any deformitations or that may occur while in the client's care. By submission of deposit, purchaser acknowledges an agreement to all policies and disclosures on countytables.com per policies. Items are sold as is and all sales are final. By having that little lingo, which is a couple sentences down at the bottom of the invoice, that covers me on everything. So if you go to countrytables.com, all my policies on deliveries, installations, shipping, design accuracy, staining, table spotting, and my lifetime warranty, everything is found on three pages at countrytables.com. But you cannot fit that all on your invoice. So you have to put that little verbiage down there and that will hold up in court. You do not have to have people sign with DocuSign because by submission of deposit, if you have people put down 50% towards their purchase of the table or item, submission of deposit is the exact same thing to agree per 
a signature. So that is one thing that I've learned in the legal world, that if you just put very simple lingo down at the bottom of your invoice, you will cover yourself and you will save yourself a lot of heartache down the road. Because it can become heartache down the road and you need to make sure you are covered in every way, shape or form possible. Following up along those lines, something that you wish you did 10 years ago, you wish you did when you were starting out, there's a lot of people who listen to this show and they are starting out. They have been doing a different job and they want to jump into furniture making. And they look at the furniture world and they think, I want to be in that world. And they want to make that jump into owning their own company. And there's also people who have been doing this for a long time and they enjoy it or maybe they hate it. But either way, they don't think that they are getting as much out of their company as they should be. They feel like they're leaving things on the table. So in your experience, as somebody who dialed their company into a machine that's running incredibly successfully, what type of advice would you give to these people out there listening? So I think the most important advice I could give somebody I sell a little wood on the side and because I, I buy it at volume and there's been two large lumber mills in the area that have closed down. And so I, you know, I'll sell a little wood on the side and I actually love it for this reason, because I get all these young woodworkers in and we'll just sit there and shoot the breeze. And I hear these stories and I kind of see what they're doing in their shops and it gives me an inside look, if you will. And biggest problem that I see young woodworkers making is not understanding what wood is. And you have to know your product. If you're going to sell something, know your product. If you're going to build something, know your product. What is this funny thing that you can make a table and you can set it in a client's house? Six months from now, you're going to get a phone call if you didn't do it correctly. So I think the number one thing that people starting out should really pay attention to is products you're working with. I've heard before that we're not really held to any standards, um, but I would totally disagree with that because I would say the product that you make is your standard. Wood will hold you accountable. And if you are not properly drying your wood, six months after you make that product, your wood is going to cup and it's going to warp. It's going to expand and contract. And that will hold you accountable because you're going to have an unhappy client. Um, so woodworking is one of these professions where you can put it in a client's house. You can take a great picture of it. But six months down the road, especially if you live up north where we get to have the seasons, and if we have a negative 20 degree day, we're sucking the moisture out of the air and all of the woodwork in our houses up here just cringe. And if you're not using wood that has enough expansion and contractions, it's not, ha doesn't have enough elasticity to it. Um, your wood's just going to crack. Um, this is why I, every time I sit down with a client, I educate them on what wood I think is the best um, for them and their family based off the Janka scale, 
what is the wood density that they want? Do they want a soft table um, down in the, the 700s, you know, like a poplar table at 400? I won't work with anything less than poplar. Or do they want a walnut table at 1010 on the Janka scale that allows for much more durability, but still has enough elasticity in the wood to be a good wood, uh, or be a good dining table for Minnesota? So these are things that people think of because all too often I see people going to Home Depot and just buying pine that's not even kiln dried and making a table with it and it'll just cup and it'll warp and if you got your business name behind that you're going to be either a fixing a lot of tables or beginning a lot of horrible reviews and you're going to fold because if you're not making a quality product the wood will hold you accountable i hear everything you're saying know your materials know what you are getting into before that delivery date because getting that call back from a client saying we need you to do this again is not only bad for your business not only bad for your bottom line but also bad for you as the builder it just doesn't put you in the headspace you want to be it doesn't put you in that moving forward position it puts you taking steps back and I know, talking to you, hearing about your business, that you are moving forward as fast as you humanly can. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and for sharing your vast knowledge on the industry, not only your company, but also the industry as a whole. I really appreciate your time and thank you. Absolutely, sir. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at The Build with Ethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.